You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Ironside, MD, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Pablo, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack Joyce, The Knight of Dampier, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we ended with the open letter that Henry Every wrote to all English commanders. It was a letter that proclaimed his unwillingness to attack or rob or even harm any English subjects or even non-English subjects that were not active enemies of the English people. If we break it down, in essence, what that argument was all about was Henry Avery saying, Look, everybody, I'm a man of fortune, and I aim to seek my fortune. I am a pirate. I'll own up to it, sure, but it's not my fault. I may be a bad guy, but I'm not a bad guy. We were all forced into this position by greedy, vile bankers and business owners like James Hublon, men of power and influence who made big promises and then just threw us out like the garbage. They were planning to sell us to the king of Spain, so we turned pirate. But we're not going to attack any of our own here. We're going to attack the enemy. And those are pretty decent arguments. The problem, though, despite how these sentiments may have moved the English people, is that they did not move the authorities. In part, that's because the authorities were on the side of those greedy bankers and business owners, but more than that, it's because Henry Every was lying. This is episode 207, A Piratical Account. Last time, we sort of just blew past the first nine or ten months of the voyage of the pirate ship Fancy. From the day of the mutiny all the way to their arrival at Madagascar, I noted a few bullet points of the journey, but before we talked about any of that in depth, I wanted to read that letter. It's important. It colors what's going to happen on that voyage. 
It's kind of a sign of what Henry Avery wanted the world to see in him, and maybe who he was actually trying to be. But if that's the case, Henry Avery failed. Let's begin at the very first stop of consequence on their voyage, the Cape Verde Islands. You know, we've talked about the Cape Verde quite a bit around here. They were one of the more important stops for global maritime trade. But despite that importance, they were kind of neutral territory. Technically, they were Portuguese territory. They'd been claimed way back in the 1450s. We actually talked about that on our very first episode. And the Portuguese still had a settlement there, St. Iago, but it's not like they garrisoned a navy flotilla 600 kilometers off the coast of Africa. Ships from any nation could more or less come and go as they pleased. Naturally, this attracted pirates. In the 1580s, during the Anglo-Spanish War, and when the crown of Portugal was under control of the crown of Spain, Francis Drake attacked Santiago twice. And pirates and privateers just kept coming to either attack Santiago or to capture ships that were stopped at the Cape Verde. Most recently, there was James Allison, who captured the ship Good Hope. It was such an important archipelago because of two things. First, they had sources of fresh water, which everyone needed, but second, and maybe more importantly, they had an abundance of salt. For a while, the Portuguese settlers tried to commercialize that salt. They put up trading ports and imported slaves from Africa to work the salt mines, but no one was buying their salt. Instead, they just stopped one of the other islands in the Cape Verde and collect their own. So, the port at St. Iago turned into a place to buy and sell other supplies that ships stopping there might need. They sort of just let people collect their own salt. It was technically against the rules, but they didn't have the ability to stop them. And if you did decide to stop at the docks, you would have to pay a fee for any salt you may have collected, but Pirates didn't stop at the docks. The fancy arrived at the Cape Verde on 6 June 1694. Their first stop was at the island of Bonavista, where they collected plenty of salt for all of their needs moving forward, mostly curing meat and fish. And I would note here that the people there prefer the use of Portuguese for their names. Properly, it shouldn't be the Cape Verde, it should be the Cabo Verde, and instead of Bonavista, it would be the Boa Vista. And the next stop that the pirates were going to make would be the Isla de Mayo. I've been using the anglicized versions of the Spanish versions of those names, because that's how they're most well-known in the English-speaking world, but from here on out I am going to switch over. After they collected their salt at Boa Vista, the fancy headed on to the Isla de Mayo and it was there that they encountered three merchant ships collecting their own salt. All three were English vessels. One was from London, but the other two were from Plymouth, the Rebecca and the James and Thomas. Now, they weren't a fleet exactly, but they were here together at the Cabo Verde for safety. It could be a dangerous place, after all. The captain of the James and Thomas was a man named Paul Bickford, and he gives a testimony that paints a pretty clear picture of what happened there. Bickford tells us that a large vessel, larger than any of the other three, pulled into the road, and initially he thought it was a French privateer. Now this 
brings up the question of the flag. Henry Every is famous for his red Jolly Roger with a skull and crossbones. The skull is facing to the right with a bandana and an earring. That's my favorite Jolly Roger design. It's the logo for this show. But Henry Every probably never flew that flag. E.T. Fox writes in King of the Pirates, quote, The strong association between the pirates and the famous skull and crossed bones postdates Every's career by nearly two decades. Furthermore, the imagery of the bandana and earring would not become associated particularly with pirates until the later 19th century. That's a consequence of Howard Pyle's artwork, he tells us. And then Fox continues, quote, The only flag which reliable records state as having been flown aboard the fancy was the St. George's Cross of England. End quote. I'm letting Fox break the news here because I feel a bit guilty about it. And E.T. Fox is an expert. I tend to agree with him on pretty much anything he says, but there are some arguments and a bit of evidence that might contradict that. For example, the Every Verses do mention a red flag at one point, although they also mention Every flying a flag from the Every Baronet, which the pirate had nothing to do with. But there is also a Mughal source later on that's going to mention a bloody flag, which is usually taken to mean a red flag. And that was such a common pirate symbol that I would not be surprised if Henry Avery did fly a Sally Rouge, although not the Jolly Roger. But it's odd, though, that if, as Fox tells us, the fancy did fly the Cross of St. George, that he thought they were a French privateer. However, of course, Avery might not have had the Cross of St. George on the mast. He was when he arrived on the scene, trying to appear as something that he was not. As a less imposing, maybe even unimposing, vessel. When the fancy pulled up in the road, she had only the guns on her upper deck displayed. That is to say, the guns that were on the open top deck. They're difficult to hide, and any ship of her size would have some guns on that top deck. So when the fancy arrived, she was only showing 20 guns, 10 on either side. It made her look like maybe a merchantman or a poorly armed privateer. It's not the kind of ship that Bickford could ignore here. He did order his men to prepare for battle when fancy arrived, but 20 guns isn't a major threat. Especially since Bickford had two ships on his side, together, the three English vessels could take her. But the ship that Bickford assumed to be a French privateer put down anchor and hailed him. She requested, in good King's English, mind you, that each of the three ships send over a boat. They were to meet formally, and that's not at all out of the ordinary. It's the kind of thing that strange vessels, but friendly ships, did all the time when they met. You know, they'd send over a few men to share a drink and share the news and maybe engage in a little bit of trade, whatever you might need. But Bikram declined the offer. Now, in that testimony, he's not clear as to why he declined exactly. It would, under normal circumstances, be seen as rude to do so. But when he refused to send those boats, the fancy responded. Someone aboard the fancy barked in order and in almost perfect unison, 
the second deck's gun ports opened up. Twenty additional big guns poked their noses out of the hull, and dozens of well-armed men appeared at the rail. It was an impressive show of force, but more than that it was impressively done. It was an, an almost theatrical pulling back of the curtain, and it had the intended effect. All told, the three English ships still outgunned the fancy. They probably carried more men, and certainly, there being three of them, they could have outmaneuvered her. But they were not warships, they were merchants. The men on board her weren't fighters, they weren't killers, they were here to collect salt. And the pirates were well-armed, organized, and ready for violence. Captain Bickford made the calculation and lowered his flag, followed by the other two. This is the pirate model. For the vast majority of ships that will be taken at sea, it was something like this. You know, earlier, the buccaneers, they often shot first and asked questions never. Plus, buccaneers were so often attacking targets on land that their naval tactics were rarely discussed and not tremendously important. But pirates, those who attacked primarily targets on sea, well, they used psychology and theatricality. They used fear to make their prey submit. Of course, if their prey refused to comply, they did have the firepower and the manpower and the know-how to do real violence at sea, but they preferred not to waste the ammo or the human lives. In this case, though, all three of those English vessels sent over boats with representatives. They were to discuss terms of their surrender. They might not even have known at this point that these were pirates rather than an enemy vessel. It was a time of war, after all. But once they were aboard, it was clear. These were Englishmen and men of fortune. Henry Every ordered them to ferry over every man from each of their three vessels to the fancy. That's how big the ship was she could hold all three crews. This took a little while, but they did comply. As they arrived at the fancy, the prisoners were herded into the quarterdeck and then into the steerage of the ship, and there they were put under guard. It's likely that the captains were keeping every company in his cabin. That kind of thing did happen a lot, but regardless, every man from one of those three ships was being watched by pirates with loaded guns and sharp sabers. Meanwhile, the fancy sent over boarding parties to pillage their vessels. Now, these three ships, from London and Plymouth, were all English. Their captains were English, their crews were English, and their cargo bound for England. And Henry Every made a big deal in that letter that he would write in a few months' time about not attacking the English. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. And this is his first act of piracy. If we exclude the mutiny, it's, at the very least, his second documented illegal act at sea. And both the mutiny and this piracy were done against Englishmen. So the question is, is Henry Avery just lying through his teeth here? The answer is kind of complicated. I mean, Henry Avery was lying here. He is proving, through this action, that he will commit piracy against English vessels. He says in that open letter to all English commanders, quote, I have never yet wronged any English or Dutch, nor ever intend to whilst I am commander. End quote. And yet here he is, doing just that. But the devil, and the truth that Henry Avery chose to believe, is in the details. First of all, we should note that Henry Avery did not fire a shot in this encounter, nor ever actually attack any Englishman with force. He only used threats. Second, and I think more important, we need to look at what the pirates took from those three English vessels. Every last man from one of those ships who was questioned agreed that the pirates took only necessary supplies. Flour. Salted pork. Salted pork. Maybe a bit of wine. But even then they didn't clean them out of those supplies. The pirates aboard the Fancy left plenty to get their English victims to a friendly port of call. The only non-consumables that the pirates took were a few bales of linen. And it's not as though there wasn't booty worth the taking on board. Now, their cargo was salt. You know, their holds weren't filled with silver coins. But those men who were questioned all pointed out that their personal sea chests that were filled with silver and some smaller personal treasures, their sea chests were not touched. The captains, with what was almost bordering on admiration at this point, they reported that the ship's treasuries were not touched either. Back in England, the papers reported all of this, and the people, reading these reports, all nodded approvingly. What a good guy this Henry Avery is. The pirates did take some guns as well. Small arms, you know, pistols and muskets, but also six big guns, it looks like they took two from each of the ships. But even in their firepower, the pirates left these three vessels with enough to defend themselves. It was, after all, a time of war, and they were on the same side. Now, while those Englishmen were, 
being held prisoner in the steerage, there are some conflicting accounts about their treatment. No one claims that they were poorly treated. They all had food and water and were free to sleep. But they were under guard. Where the difference comes in is what those guards were doing. According to three men who were questioned a few years after the fact, those guards were picking out sailors, a total of nine of them, that would be an asset to the pirate crew, asking around for people with specialties like cooks and carpenters and the like. Those nine men were removed from the larger group and held separately. They were going to be forced to set sail on the fancy against their will, a conscripted pirate on the account. But those three who were questioned some years later were among the nine who were picked out. The other side of the story comes from a bunch of crewmen who didn't go with Every, not years after the fact, including Captain Bikram. All of those accounts agree that the pirates who were guarding the English sailors began to tell stories. Talking about their poor treatment in Acarunia, about their evil overlords and the freedom that they now enjoyed, they were talking about the joy of the pirate's life. You know, no lashings, no masters, and a good, honorable, trustworthy captain at the helm. All of those testimonies agree that those nine sailors chose to go with the pirates. It was a decision made of their own free will, and even eagerly. Now, I'm not here to tell you what to believe. I'll let you make your own decision, but the people of England believed that those nine sailors chose to go with Every and most of England thought they were right to do so. But then this story begins to get even weirder. The men were waiting a full 24 hours in the steerage. But once the looting was over, while all of the sailors were being ferried back to their ships, Captain Every summoned the three captains to his cabin. He was there with one of the Fancy's two different quartermasters, the quartermasters aboard the Fancy were Joseph Dawson and Henry Adams, and it's not a hundred percent clear if they served at the same time or if they served one after the other. At least, I can't find a reputable source on it. So I don't know which quartermaster it was that was here for this meeting between Every and the captains. They only mention a quartermaster, and there are differing opinions on the matter in every book I have that mentions this exchange books by historians I trust, so I don't know who to believe, but it was one of those two. Regardless, the mystery quartermaster handed each of the captains a small pile of papers. To their astonishment, those papers were bills for the supplies that Every's men had stolen, a kind of a receipt that, theoretically, under normal circumstances, could be used for recompense once they reached England. And when those English vessels returned to their ships, they found that the records were exactly accurate. They were a perfect accounting of what the pirates had taken. Now, under normal circumstances, these would be exchanged at a bank, say, the Bank of England, a bank founded by one of the Hublon brothers. But they would only do that if the person who gave the bill had an account at the bank. Now, Henry Avery might have had an account at the Bank of England. 
He was, previously, first mate on the flagship of a Hublon-owned voyage. But it's not like even if he did, they were going to honor it. E.T. Fox suggests that these bills may have been written on Spanish expedition letterhead, which infers that it would have been James Hublon who owed them for their lost cargo. But of course, Hublon wasn't going to pay up either. Apparently, when those men inquired about the bills, Henry Every told them that they could be redeemed, quote, on the account. He did so with a bit of a wink and maybe a sneer. Henry Every and every man on board the Fancy were on the account. After all, what Every himself would later call the piratical account. What those bills really were, above all, was proof that Henry Every, soon to be an infamous pirate, took their supplies. The captains could show those bills to the owners of the ship. Those owners would then be unable to charge them for any of the lost cargo. Henry Every knew that they would be unable to redeem those bills, but he gave them a, you know, a doctor's note, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's an honorable thing to do the right thing to do in that situation. I mean, what a good guy this Henry Every is, am I right? But it's about to get even weirder still. Once all of those men were back aboard their vessels, Henry Every set sail in the fancy. Not a single soul had been injured in this piratical action. The three ships stayed at the Isla de Mayo for a while to collect themselves and to verify that those bills were an accurate accounting of what had been taken. That's when they found that their sea chests and the treasuries on board had not been touched. It was amazing. Maybe this Henry Every was a horse of a different color, but then, just a couple of hours later, Henry Every and the Fancy came back. This time there was no hiding what they were. Their full complement of guns was bristling from the hull. And once again, Every put down anchor. So, this is it, right? They've come to finish the job. Maybe the men wanted blood and Henry Every was unable to stop them. So those three ships prepared for a fight. Henry Every himself approached the rail and hailed those three ships again, ordering them to send over boats with representatives. And they complied. Dutifully, they complied. Those representatives rode over and climbed aboard the Fancy, where they chatted with the captain for a few minutes and then climbed back down into their boats and returned to their mothership. Once they were aboard, their captains rushed over to see what all of that had been about. Why had Captain Every called them over to his ship? And those representatives handed each of their captains a small pouch filled with silver, courtesy of Henry Every and the Pirates of the Fancy. Apparently, when the Fancy sailed away, she sailed directly to Santiago, the capital of Cabo Verde. Boldly, and flying the flag of St. George, they docked at the harbor there. And I know I said that pirates don't dock at port cities, and for most pirates that's true, but Henry Every is not most pirates. See, England and Portugal were allies in the Nine Years' War. They'd been allies for a couple of hundred years by this point. 
and this was a very fine English frigate, you might even call it fancy. She wasn't a haggard or bedraggled pirate ship, her sails were in fine fettle, her hull looked clean, and the men were all sober and well-fed. Beyond that, the captain had the manners and the cadence of a proper English officer. They had no reason to suspect this ship. So nobody stopped them from docking. The harbor master there at Santiago arrived to see what business they were here about, and the quartermaster, whoever he may have been, informed the harbor master that they wanted to sell a bit of linen that they'd come across. Which is what they did. There was no raping and pillaging, no bombarding the town, just selling a bit of linen. That same linen that they had just stolen a few hours earlier. And then the fancy went back to their victims and gave each of them a share of the profits. It wasn't enough to cover their losses, and it wasn't even the full amount that they'd gotten for the linen in Santiago. Fancy definitely kept a share here. But it was a little something to recoup some of the losses and maybe to heal the wound of having been ransacked. The captains were flabbergasted. This was an honorable thing to do, the right thing to do, as right as it can be, having just stolen from them. But really, what a good guy this Henry Every is. And at this point, after all of these little interactions, I imagine you're probably tempted to agree. Not such a nasty character, O'Levery. Stephen Johnson writes in Enemy of All Mankind, quote, The stopover at Cape Verde displayed a character that would be increasingly evident in Every's actions. A deliberate attempt, if a futile one, to retain some semblance of ethics and legitimacy, particularly in regard to English property. End quote. Henry Every was very good at making people think he wasn't such a bad guy. But that warm and fuzzy feeling is not going to last. The next stop on the voyage of the fancy is going to be on the coast of Africa. It's a stop that we've alluded to before. There, Henry Every will take on a cargo of human beings and condemn them to a life of forced servitude. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon or left us ratings or reviews or just recommended this show. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. And as always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Shake.
Tonight 